13. I believe the passage is on page 920 in your blue pew Bibles. I say I believe because I forgot to look it up. So if I'm wrong, just correct me for everyone's benefit. Page 920, Acts 13. And while we have prayed for the preaching of God's word, uh, preaching is such a supernatural endeavor <laughs> that uh, we, if God doesn't work, then nothing happens. Um, and I'm, I'm regularly reminded of that because it's, it comes up against um, th- that it is not a human endeavor. I, I personally feel that most Sundays. If it were a human endeavor, we wouldn't pray. Uh, But because God works through his word and by his spirit in a a very powerful and supernatural way, we we pray that he would use his word. So I'm feeling particularly my weakness, my humanity uh, this this morning, uh, which I'll explain in a little bit. But... I would really appreciate it if we would just take 30 seconds and the gathered people of God, would you just pray quietly that the Lord... would help me, but more importantly, that he would speak uh, through his word. And then I will compose myself and we'll hear God's word. So let's just take a moment. I appreciate that you are a people that I'm not afraid to be weak in front of. God is real. He is the creator of everything. He made you. He made me. He oversees human history. He guides and governs all things. He is not far off. He is near. He cares a great deal about what you and I do with our lives. Each of those short statements about him face resistance of all kinds wherever you go on this planet. But resistance does not make God any less real. I aim in my minutes with you to impress on us the reality that God is active today. And he is doing something in the world. There's a particular mission he has which inevitably will divide all people into two categories. People who live with him and people who die without him. I don't assume that everyone here wants to know what God is doing in the world. 
but we all need to know. Because knowing and responding to God will make all the difference in all our lives. Our passage from Acts this morning is a particularly long one. Acts 13, 1 through chapter 14, verse 28. We've been going through the book of Acts since Acts chapter 1, studying it in larger sections. And in it, the author Luke is narrating for us the work and spread of Jesus' kingdom after he left the earth. And where we find ourselves in the story this morning is a narration of a journey of two men, a guy named Saul who gets renamed Paul, and Barnabas, a journey that they take from a city called Antioch into the regions west and northwest of Antioch. This is often called Paul's first missionary journey, but I think it would be more appropriate to call this God's missionary work. There are three aspects of God's mission to pay attention to in this passage. Each of this we will see, focus on what God is doing. But they also invite us to be part of what God is doing. So at each point of the three, we will both look at God's mission, but we will also check if and how we are involved in his mission. So if you're taking notes this morning, here's my outline. Number one, God is sending are we going? God is sending. Are we going? Number two, God is giving faith. Are we believing? God is giving faith. Are we believing? Number three, God is gathering. Are we together? God is gathering. Are we together? I trust and pray that as the Lord speaks, he will move our hearts to want to be involved in his mission. There's no life like it. Number one, then, God is sending. Are we going? Look at chapter 13. I'll start reading in verse 1. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Barjesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that's the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. And you'll be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him. And he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. 
Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. There's a lot of things we can talk about right there. We're not going to be able to talk about all of them. The main thing I think we see God doing here, going about his work, is sending messengers with his words into his world. That's God's work. He is sending. He sends out Paul and Barnabas through his church. He sends them to various people. They have this encounter with Elymas, the magician, the one who won't believe, and then the one who does believe, Sergius Paulus, that will... That will factor in later as well in the theme of faith and belief that's all over this text. But I want us to focus on God's sending and sending Paul and Barnabas with words, the word of God, the law. It's repeated over and over with a message. And to ask ourselves the question, if this is God's work, are we involved in his sending mission? If he is sending, are we going? Now, this probably raises questions for you. If you start asking yourself that question, you start wondering, well, what does that mean? And where do I go? And what do I do? And maybe some of those I'll address. But I first want us to see and agree that being useful for the Lord in what he is doing means being willing to be involved in his sending work. This is what God is about. Are we individually and corporately as a church interested in that? That's the question to ask ourselves again. Not at all casting suspicion or doubt whether we have been up to today. I think we have. But we should keep asking, are we aligned? Are we about God's work? Is our attitude with God, here am I, Lord, send me? Or do we more prefer to say, I'm here, Lord, but send someone else. God's work is not stationary. It's not static. It is dynamic and mobile. When God first met Abraham, he told him to get up and go because God was going to bless him with a family he didn't yet have in a place he didn't yet know. And through him, bless nations that weren't yet nations. In the wilderness, God had his people on the move. And as they moved, he regularly met their need and worked in and through them. When Jesus rose from the dead, he, dis- he told his disciples and us, his church, that his work would take them on the go. I just finished a year and a half home remodeling project. I think I recommend it. And we moved into our house a month ago. It's the first time in my life where I have felt in my adult life, my married life, which has taken us from D.C. to Kentucky to Dubai to Massachusetts to here. But now it's the first time in my life where I feel really settled. I do pray that this is a place we get to stay for a long time. But even if I die in Kansas City, I hope I live like I am sent. We are a growing and vibrant church. 
the urge, the human urge, will be to reach critical mass and coast. To reach a comfortable spot like Israel in the promised land. Get us some good leaders. Get us some money in the bank. Get us a reputation in the area for being a healthy and growing church. To start assuming that the mission of God is where we are instead of where he is. But God intends us to keep sending out. To keep being sent. To be sent to our family members. To be sent to our friends. To be sent to our co-workers. To our classmates. To our city. to To our world. We do not want to hoard the gift of his word. We want to herald it. One way to make sure that we are keeping our hearts sensitized and soft to God's leading is to regularly cultivate habits of dependency. I've learned in my own life that I do not pray when I don't feel like I need anything. And I typically don't go hungry either. And those things are related Notice that the early church was in the habit, in those first few verses, of worshiping through habits of dependence. They didn't think of fasting as legalistic or outmoded religion now that Jesus is their bread of life. And their prayer life meshed in with their abstaining from food. Which we get. Because when you're hungry, you feel needy. And when you're needy, I think you're ready for God to work. Look at how the Holy Spirit guides the church when they're feeling dependent on him. He sends out people. He somehow impresses upon the whole church that they should send these men out to take the word elsewhere. What if we start deliberately taking time each week to not eat and use that time to pray that the Holy Spirit would lead our church? Is that what he's leading us to do in his word? I ask that to you and take it and run with it. As we've been in the series in Acts, we can't ignore the place of prayer. The way forward we've said often is prayer together. And let me tell you particularly why I opened the sermon the way I did. Last night I was gripped with anger because I wasn't getting what I wanted. And it it was just one of those seasons where I just, I didn't know how to get out of it or break out of it. And my helpful wife suggested that we pray. And as we talked with God... God broke through. His spirit brought his word to mind. And when we were done, I wanted to be done with my anger and take God's way of humility. I say that because I see in my own life and for us as a church, we have to keep praying. It was the last thing I wanted to do last night. We must keep praying. We must pray on our own. We must pray together. This is the language of the Christian life. So Lord willing in the fall, just as an announcement, we're actually going to move our corporate prayer times from Wednesday night to Sunday mornings. 
9.15, we're going to gather and we're going to pray. And we're going to have classes for younger kids so that they can come and learn about God. And we as members can come and pray. So to start developing habits of dependency that we can all come around, just go ahead and put that in your calendar now. Mark corporate prayer time, 9.15, Sunday morning, so that you start seeing it pop up every week in your calendar and we're ready in the fall to come together. The future of our church depends on God to lead us. And when we know we need him, we will want him to lead us. As we see these men sent out, you might be here wondering, should I go somewhere? Should I go overseas? Should I be a missionary? Should I, is God using this to call me to that? Well, thankfully, that's not a decision entirely left up to you. God uses the church in Antioch to affirm that Saul and Barnabas should go out. So if you're wondering if you should go, here are some things you can do now. You can pray. You can ask God to lead you. You can ask others for help in thinking through this, for direction and discernment. Being a good missionary here in Kansas City is a good way to test whether you'd be a good missionary somewhere else. Saul and Barnabas were teaching people everywhere they were. And assume, assume that if this is increasingly a desire you have, assume that the church is best suited, a gift from God to you, to send you if you you should be sent. When God sends us, he gives a gift to people through us, which brings us to our second point. God is giving faith. Are we believing? Look at verse 16 of chapter 13. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand. Oh, by the way, this is going to be a long reading. I'm going to read into 14. Paul stands up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God has promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to, the, to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. 
Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest as what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to do eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men in the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. And they drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now, at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with Jews and some with the apostles When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men. Of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went out with Barnabas to Derbe. 
When they had preached the gospel of that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. When they appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. If you were to go back through that passage and highlight every time the word belief occurs, you would see that this is a major emphasis of this portion. The Holy Spirit sends Barnabas and Paul to several different places. Some of their listeners are Jewish and very familiar with God. Some of them are Gentile, even pagan worshipers who sacrificed animals at the temple of Zeus. You could go back later today or this week and learn some helpful things about how to talk to people about God and Jesus based on their context and backgrounds, just from the different ways that Paul and Barnabas talk to these two very different groups. But whether or not Paul and Barnabas are talking to monotheistic Jews or pantheistic Greeks and Romans, they are seeking to tell both groups the same fundamental message. In chapter 13, verse 32, they bring the good news to the Jews. And in chapter 14, verse 15, they bring the good news to the Gentiles. And the good news is probably most clearly spelled out in Paul's sermon to the Jews. He tells them this is a message of salvation, chapter 13, verse 26. Through a promised Savior, Jesus Christ, chapter 13, verse 23. This Jesus was without guilt or sin, but for sinners he was crucified and rose again. He is the King, through whose resurrection he brings forgiveness of sins, chapter 13, verse 38. For everyone who believes in him, chapter 13, verse 39. And calls us to turn from sin and false worship to trust him, the one true and living God. Chapter 14, verse 15. For any and all people, the message from God is the same. Turn from your sin. Trust in Christ who died to forgive you and bring you to eternal life. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. If God never sent his son, there would be no good news. All our hope rests on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if God did not send messengers to tell about Christ, we would have never heard. And if we hadn't heard, how could we ever have believed? And if when we heard the Holy Spirit had not worked in our hearts to cause us to receive his implanted word, we would have never believed and followed Christ. So if you are sitting here as a believer in Jesus Christ, it is because God has loved and cared for you in a very special way. The passage clearly and repeatedly affirms that faith is a gift from God. Look at chapter 13, verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by from the law of Moses. Then look a little bit further down as the message goes to the, the Gentiles. Look at verse 48, chapter 13. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. 
Then look at chapter 14, verse 20, verse 15. Sorry, verse 27. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. We are absolutely dependent on God and his grace to draw us to himself. And yet the Lord puts the question before us too. Will you believe in Jesus? Paul and Barnabas warned the Jews not to become who Habakkuk the prophet was talking about in chapter 13 verse 41. Those who see the work of God in Jesus Christ for salvation and instead of believing in Jesus mock the idea that they need a savior. They hold the rejectors responsible for their choice in chapter 13, verse 36, when they thrust the gospel aside and judge themselves unworthy of eternal life. Paul and Barnabas imply even that the Gentile listeners are personally responsible to hear the word of God and turn from their sin. Chapter 14, verse 15. The evidence of God's saving work in your heart is that you believe that Jesus Christ is your Savior and King and you live your life accordingly. The difference between a believer and an unbeliever is starkly contrasted in this passage. Those who believed rejoiced and worshipped God. Those who didn't went out of their way to oppose the gospel, going so far as to hunt Paul and Barnabas from city to city Trying to disrupt the work. The gospel of Jesus Christ will either take us out of our sinful ways. Or we will reject the gospel to keep on in our sinful ways. There is no other way. In God's categorization of people. There are only believers and unbelievers. Which one are you? You might ask, how can a person who needs the gift of faith from God in order to believe have any hope of believing if God doesn't give the faith needed? Well, we don't, actually. So what if God withholds from faith from us? Is there any hope for our salvation then? There isn't. So it all depends on God being merciful to us dead sinners only because of his gracious choice? Exactly. So how can I know if he's chosen to be gracious to me? Well, because today he's sending his good news to you. And the promise with it that all that is needed for life, he will provide through Jesus Christ. Faith is not showing an initiative toward God that persuades God to save you. Faith is a willing response to God who has initiated to you. In order to save you. You are hearing and I am hearing again the gospel today because God is gracious. If you are not a Christian. And you don't know what to do to be free from your sin. Though you feel its weight. I have good news. Jesus Christ rose from the dead to set you free. And to bring you into life. If you are a Christian. 
and you find yourselves at times like me last night and you don't know what to do because you've sinned against your Savior again, I have good news. Jesus Christ rose from the dead and he now lives in you. With the faith God provides, all of us, everyone in this room, can respond to God in trust and reliance and full allegiance. There is no barrier, no barrier so strong that he cannot break through. And even the smallest amount of faith he gives is enough for this because God says it is. Our forgiveness, our obedience, our maturing in the Christian life, our progress from day to day. None of it depends on the strength of our beliefs. It is God who justifies. It is God who sanctifies. It is God who holds us. It is God who grows us. It is God's word that guides us. It is God's spirit that protects us. You need only a tiny bit of faith to see and receive the blessings and promises of a huge God. So is there anything else we need to look for, for evidence of the saving belief, the kind that God gives? Well, Paul and Barnabas tell the Gentiles to turn from their sin. Think about the illustration of my life yesterday, my anger. If I allow a desire for my own way to grip me, I will keep my sin and not trust God to take me his way. And friends, I know the pull for my own way. I don't know if you feel it, but it is sometimes really strong. So, so strong. But it's still wrong. And God says he opposes proud people who won't let go of their sinful ways. So if the grip of sin has you and you are blindingly committed to it or you're blind to how to get out of it. Jesus says he gives his grace. To the humble. To the humble. You need to let the sin go. Eventually you need to let it go. But let me suggest. That shouldn't be the first step. If you're committed to it. If you're holding on to it. You should first tell Jesus. You don't want to let it go. And you need him to work powerfully. By his grace and his mercy. To cause your heart to want. To let go of sin and follow him. Start there to give you faith so you can believe him and follow him and live. One of the key ways we help each other follow Jesus is by directing each other to believe in Jesus. So if a friend is hurting, take them to Jesus who helps. If a brother is broken, bring them to Jesus for healing. If a sister is despairing, tell her about the hope that's Jesus. If we are at a loss for what to say, say that to Jesus and ask him for help. Faith is a gift, and it's one that we want to treasure among us. It is no small thing that we get to know Jesus Christ as our Savior. So as a church, believing Christ is the thing we want to be about in our lives. That's the connection to the third aspect of God's mission that we see in this passage. God is gathering. Are we together? I'm going to start reading in verse 19 again. Chapter 14. But Jews from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. 
But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel of that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. And saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, there it is again, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. When they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And there remained no little time with the disciples. After Paul and Barnabas get to Derby, they actually double back and backtrack through the places they've already been in this in this section. They weren't just evangelists, they were church planters. And just a couple of notes about that pattern, which will keep occurring in Acts. One is that everywhere in Acts where we see the apostles returning to, where they've already brought the gospel, you no longer see miraculous demonstrations of the Spirit. I think that's interesting. What I mean by that is you no longer see paralyzed people getting up and walking or people being raised from the dead. Instead, you see growing communities of believers. So it's not as if God stops working miracles. It's just the miracle becomes the work he is doing to save and grow his people as the church to be more like Christ. That's just as supernatural. (laughs) Maybe if not more. As a paralyzed person getting up and walking. Another note in this pattern. Paul and Barnabas understand that there is a vital connection between bringing people to faith. And then bringing them into the local church with other believers. If soul winning. If the mission of God is to win souls. And it's, if it were just a matter of sharing the gospel to as many people as possible. These men would have no reason to return to these cities where they'd already been. Interestingly, Jesus tells his church not to make converts, which would have altered the mission to just acquire professions and move on, but to make disciples, which requires us spending time living with each other, teaching and helping and encouraging people in shared life together. The example of Acts and the rest of the New Testament is that when people become believers, they commit to gather with other Christians. The church is a gathered people who gather. And not just in a physical gathering kind of way like we're doing right now. Although that's part of it. But a gathering around a shared faith. The gospel binds believers in Jesus Christ. He is our leader. He is our head. And that's why we do what we do on Sunday morning. That's why our services follow a pattern of looking to Jesus, trusting Jesus, praising Jesus, asking Jesus for help, confessing our sins to Jesus, pleading for his forgiveness, wanting to follow him, committing to follow him, hearing from his word. All of it is centered as a gathering around a common faith in Christ. If you were traveling with Paul and Barnabas, how would you know in any given place who was following Christ? Well, I think by who was a part of the gathering. And how would you indicate that you were intending to follow Jesus as an individual? Well, by joining your life to help other people, other believers in that place, follow Jesus. 
It makes no sense for Paul and Barnabas to appoint elders or shepherds or overseers if there weren't a defined group of people those overseers were responsible for. And it would be impossible for those leaders or that church to do their job if there were no believers willing to be accountable to each other. So you might be here as a Christian. You've just always thought of the church like a pit stop on a road race. Which I get. Because for many years I did too. You know, you come here on Sunday. You get refueled. But most of your life you're living on your own. Trying to stay on the track. But do you see from the verses I just read. That God intends you to receive much more than that. Much more than an individualistic life on your own. But through life gathered and committed to other believers. God intends to bless you. Look at 14.22. Through other disciples Jesus intends to strengthen you. 14.22. Through other disciples of Jesus. He intends to encourage you in the faith. 14.22. Through other believers that you gather with. Jesus intends to help you when hard trials come. In 1423, Jesus, through pastors, he gives his gifts to the church. He intends to watch over you. And he intends to give you a church that prays for you. And is committed to God to help you as a fellow believer. So if you haven't yet, join our church or join another church that believes and preaches the gospel. For your sake, for your blessing. This is a way to commit to the life that Jesus intended us to have with his people when he gave us faith. June 25th, membership classes coming up, 5 p.m. Visitors know that when I or other people in this church, which may happen right after this service, ask you if you're planning to attend those classes because you've been visiting or you're new, please know that we do not mean that as a way to, like, be annoying, but as a way because we understand We lovingly help you receive all that Christ has for you by encouraging you to find a church to be committed to. That's what we're aiming at. Church, look at all the blessings that God provides us in the gathering of our church. We can measure our togetherness by a whole lot of different metrics. We can measure it by our activities. We can measure it by what we have in common. We can measure it by whether or not our kids go to the same school. We can measure it by our musical preferences. But see here that God's mission is to bring his people around the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what creates our identity as a church. So even if we may differ on many things, the gospel will remain still the thing that holds us together. The main thing that gathers us. Believing the gospel together is our shared responsibility. Depending on Jesus and his gospel is our shared way of life. Sharing the gospel with those who don't know is our shared mission. We can know that we're being gathered by God when the gospel is foundational to who we are. And central to what we do. The alternative? The alternative is to be divided from God's mission when other things become our foundation and focus. Whatever that alternative might look like, like, it's not the life Jesus died to give us. So let's just agree we don't want that. God's mission is for us as a gathered people to lean into life together. People who know you. 
People who are committed to you. People so near to you that they are the best suited people to truly help you grow in Christ. Brothers and sisters, the more you personally exemplify commitment to Christ through your commitment to his people here, the more you will help us gather around Jesus. When you strengthen me in Jesus, I will be stronger and better equipped to strengthen others. When I encourage you in trial to keep following Jesus, you are encouraged and you are equipped to comfort others in their afflictions. You and I are part of God's intentional mission. He put us together for this. He gathers us for this in this place, in this time, and in this particular gathering of his people. He is ready to send us. Let's be ready to go. He is giving us faith. Let's keep believing in him. He is gathering us. So let's live with him together. Let's pray.